What's up, guys? Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we are joined by Chris Crabtree, who's going to talk all about some poetry. Uh, really fun conversation. I think you'll really enjoy it. I will say that uh, for today's episode, there was a little bit of complications with the audio file. Uh, so I actually did a lot of the editing to try and clean that up. Uh, so if it's a little messy, <laughs> I just wanted to make sure you guys knew that that was me and not Misha. Uh, Misha is still involved today doing the, the music and, and still helped with the production as well. Uh, but if anything is is, is strange sounding or kind of weird, uh, chalk that up to me. Uh, thanks again for listening, guys. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. This is your host, Walker Near. On today's episode, we've got Chris Crabtree, who has recently uh, completed his thesis uh, and for his master's degree. And, and so I just wanted to bring him on and talk kind of through what that process looks like and, and have him explain what his thesis is about. He's actually yeah, a poet, so it's pretty fascinating stuff to me. Uh so yeah, Chris Crabtree, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, man. Um, we're going to talk about the thesis. I will say, if I can remember at the end, uh, you guys have heard Chris before. He was on for the Total War Three Kingdoms podcast. And while this isn't about that, at the very end, we might piggyback on a few thoughts on that because we did the preview for it and now that game has come out. So, uh, But without further ado, let's jump into the thesis. So uh, you started out at a local community college and did your first couple of years there. Is that right? That's right. Correct. And then after that, transferred to a four-year university where you finished your bachelor's degree. Yes. So what was the bachelor's degree in? Uh, it was also uh, English, uh, creative writing. And uh, yeah, it was it was uh, kind of just a process of elimination. I didn't really go into uh, my academic career, mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, you know, as an English major, um, but over the course of taking classes and like college algebra, which took me three times to get through, okay, yeah, yeah, or um, the science classes, which I had to complete online so I could do video game lab time, right? Yeah, because going to the actual lab sucks. <laughs> yep. But uh, yeah, I figured you know English is going to be the way I'm going to finish this degree and. So that's what I started doing and uh, started doing creative writing because I want to do something creative and uh, just started doing poetry actually because really because it was shorter than writing a short story. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So initially motivated by the, um, we'll use a euphemism and say the accessibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of musical influence with uh, lyrics you know, like finding connections in certain songs and uh, wanting to, I guess, kind of duplicate that in some way is kind of where it started. Yeah, actually, I mentioned the Three Kingdoms episode. You guys have also heard Tree. That's what we all call him on the um, on the, the Tool episode that he and Misha and I did where we were talking all about our love for Tool. Oh, so that's kind of the lyrical tie-in that you're really ref referencing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Tool being a major uh, influence. Yeah. On uh, just seeing extra, you know, layers and depth in lyrical content. Right. And, uh, yeah, just trying to, like, duplicate that in poetry. 
So how, how I'm jumping a little bit ahead because we're not to the thesis yet, but whatever. How ironic or oxymoronic, I don't know what word you'd use, but that, that you would act, that you would choose poetry because in the simplest way you thought it was easy or, and I said accessible, right? Uh, However, that's probably the, you know, not the one, but it's of the creative things, you know, I mean, now calculus or uh, I don't know, chemistry and that stuff is like super hard actually. (laughs) But, um, but poetry, as far as a creative outlet, is actually, I think, broadly viewed as one of the more unaccessible <laughs> mediums. Like, everyone can read a short story, but a lot of people are like, I don't get poetry. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah it, it, it really is it's just like, um, I guess I enjoyed thinking about the construction of it more in um, a shorter, I guess, page length. Yeah. Um as opposed to like, you know, outlining a longer story where you got to worry about events transitioning into other events and having that make sense. I was like, I could kind of like zero in on a specific moment. Yeah. And um, just kind of like explore that. Right. I guess. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting because, you know, now I, to be clear, am not, am not in any way a poetry writer or something. But there was a, a, I don't know, a year or so ago where I wanted to write a, a poem. And so I went to you for help. And it was interesting because, you know, we're lifelong gamers, video games, you know. And uh, writing a poem, like especially if you choose a pre-established form for it. And I mean, maybe you could invent the form on your own. But assuming that you have a form that you're going to try and adhere to, whether that be a rhyme scheme or a syllable count per line like a haiku you know whatever that form is it almost kind of becomes a little bit of a game because you kind of think about what you want to communicate and then you end up going to the thesaurus (laughs) and trying to find different ways to say the same thing so that you can fit it into whatever format that is yeah exactly so I mean again my experience with it very limited so I don't mean to put myself on the same level as you at all but just it was interesting to to kind of go through that process as, even as briefly as I did because yeah it, it kind of felt you know almost like it's not this but like a like a crossword puzzle or something I mean you know like there's a puzzle element there's a puzzle element there's a game to it um, and yeah you can you can achieve that through a form where you're trying to like fit it into a specific uh, like syllable count or something like that mm-hmm. um, but also just in trying to find the right word, even if there isn't a pre-established form. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, words can carry a lot of different meanings and can make a lot of different associations. And so when you pair them with other words, sometimes you can get multiple meanings um, out of that. Right. And so you can kind of, you know, play that game you know, even though if there's not like a standard form, like a sonnet or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I also found it interesting and you know, I don't know how legitimate this is or whatever, but like, like, let's say, let, let's say for example, you were going to rhyme the word basket. Right. So like maybe a, an obvious rhyme of that would be like ratchet. Right. Cause it comes in that, it has that same ending sound, which I guess is what 
it defines a rhyme. But it's like maybe instead, what I found in going through it was like maybe instead of only trying to rhyme the end, like maybe you do basket and task. Right. Right? Because the middle of it sounds the same. I don't know what that term, there's a word for that. Yeah. Well, there's like, isn't there like alliteration or something where you, it's like the words begin with the same thing? Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because poetry is something that, uh, you know, I've always felt somewhat of a barrier of injury to. And um, then through, you know, knowing you or whatever, it, 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 it was really fascinating to kind of see. Um, see the process of it. And I don't even mean when I when I wrote it, because again, that was only one time, but but just watching you go through it and and really watching your evolution. Um, you know, I remember when you very first started, you were writing a lot of like, like you said, you were influenced by, by lyrics. So it was a lot of really like abstract, very lyrically similar to song lyrics kinds of things. Yeah. And so it wasn't that it was, it wasn't that it was like, you know, bad or something, but I remember reading it and I remember having to go to you and ask you to tell me, like, what, is what does it mean? Yeah. So it, it it's interesting to see how you progress from that. And so I think that maybe is a good segue into your thesis. Yeah. Um, I really, that's the beginning of it. Yeah. So if you, if you don't mind, you know, summarize kind of what is, and I've, I've got your thesis pulled up. So I could read, <laughs> I could read what's called the abstract. I don't know what any of this shit means, folks. <laughs> Um, but instead, how about you just kind of summarize what it's, uh, what it's about? Okay. Well, I mean, I guess it will start with, uh, yeah, my abstract writing in the, the very beginning, you know, um, trying to imitate lyrics. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, abstract, I guess, writing, you know, in songs and stuff. Um, you can kind of have that leeway with being more abstract because there's also music accompanying it and so you can kind of like enjoy that music and not really know exactly i guess what they're saying and be okay with that yeah um you know with poetry it's a little different because you don't have that music i mean it's basically what you know you got what you got on the page if you read it out loud there's there can be a certain rhythm or cadence to the words Mm mm-hmm but um i mean you're basically that's what it is and so when i first got to missouri state um i had a uh teacher by the name of jane hogestrat mm-hmm. i'm beginning poetry you know didn't really know anything about it all i knew is that i i like writing this way so and this is your third year at in university, actually, though, right? Correct. Yeah, okay. first two years being an OTC. But now those, the community college years, did those have any emphasis on writing or poetry at all, or were that more kind of like general? Yeah, that was all just general classes. I okay. mean, I had English classes, but it was all geared towards composition. Yeah. You know, I didn't have any creative writing classes. So the, really, this is my first creative writing class ever. I realize I'm just going on a tangent a little bit here, but I have to say, I always thought that composition classes sucked <laughs> now i only yeah. i didn't go to i mean I've, I've i have attended some first year university classes i guess but i don't have a college you know degree or anything so most of my experience would come from you know just grade school or whatever but it's also cool because poetry is kind of the antithesis of composition because you can break all of those rules none of that matters yeah. In the same way. Right, right. And yeah, rules yeah, made to be broken, it seems like, in yeah. poetry anyway. Yeah, anyway, sorry. <laughs> um, actually, yeah, that's... 
what I consider uh, my weakness is like grammatical things, you know, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm so used to just being able to write however I want to write in right. poetry. And so it's like, oh, yeah, I got to remember to kind of like, you know, you know, stir that up. But right. Anyway, um, so you went to you, you were saying that you were at Missouri State and your your Jane is your teacher is kind of where you, you were. Yeah. And uh, so, I'm, you know, she's prompting me. She's right. You know, these are the poetry assignments, whatever. And I'm writing and clearly I'm like trying to, to create something. Right. You know, I'm like invested in it. But um, it's just hard to understand. I mean, there really isn't um, a, a story that's easy to follow in it. Um, I use a lot of, you know, abstract terms and just kind of like generic ways of describing things. Um, So really her instruction towards me was always to be more concrete Mm. and trying to um, develop the images into something that was, you know, more uh, easily understandable or more based in reality Mm -hmm. or you know, something that can easily be identified as like a starting point. Right. Um, because it's not that abstraction is bad or that you can't make leaps in meaning and, and so to speak, but you kind of have to have it grounded in uh, something that's easy to understand first before you kind of like, you know, make those metaphors and such. Yeah, it seems like in a lot of abstract poetry, which is like, <laughs> like, it seems like most people who like are aspiring poets, but haven't actually, and I'm mean, not that a person would have to go to university to learn how to be a poet or something, but just people who are just dabbling in it and not really haven't really invested a lot of time. They're always in that kind of abstract camp, which is then also simultaneously the most accessible poetry because I can go onto Facebook and, or, you know, even earlier than that, MySpace, you know, yeah. and find someone who's a quote unquote poet but all of their stuff is this abstract stuff, which is really largely, it seems to be just like a communication of like emotions yeah. without, without explaining what the emotion is tied to as far as a, a grounded context, like what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I think that's part of what makes people think that poetry is inaccessible because if you don't know, if you don't know what quote unquote good poetry is, yeah. And the accessible thing is the drivel. <laughs> then you read it and it's like, oh, I don't get that. I don't get poetry. And it's like, no, that's not real poetry. Right. It's kind of like if you were like, I want to drink beer. And someone was like, well, the only beer is Bud Light. And you're like, well, I'm fucked because <laughs> I don't want that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it turns out there's better beers out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway. Yeah. And uh, also a big thing is like understanding, understanding cliches. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being able to, you know, try and find some new way of looking at something. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone has like a breakup story or, right. you know, um, I lost my dog or, you know. But I mean, you know, part of the create, I think the the, the real value of, of creating something is, is it, at least for me, like is kind of finding a way to to explore things that are mainly maybe painful. And so, yeah, everyone has the dog passed away or everyone has the girlfriend left you or whatever, but, but that doesn't make it any less significant to that individual just because it's a cliche. Right. Right. It's just like in the way of describing it, um, 
you know, you can describe it in a very generic way Mm -hmm. or you could really delve into it. And, you know, yeah, there can be good things that can come out of that still. Do you think to some extent that speaks to kind of the um, the artistic vulnerability where it's like when you're starting and you're writing about the girlfriend or the dog or whatever the case may be, you know, and and you're writing about your emotions, it's like you're still kind of being guarded in doing it like even though you feel like you're pouring your heart out it's like you're really not mm-hmm. and it's like to actually ground it to the real story and to actually talk about what really happened yeah. and tie it to a narrative like is more vulnerable because now you're really you're really telling the story you're not you're not just talking about that it sucks to feel sad exactly you know yeah. um you know um a, a death a death of someone close to you yeah right and like say for example maybe you there is some regret there because maybe you didn't get to say what you wanted to say before they passed yeah and being able to actually go to that moment and kind of describe that like yeah it takes a you know a certain vulnerability to yeah. really just face that right and so a lot of times you know you'll get a lot of filler language because you're kind of still distancing yourself from it. Right. Whether you're conscious of it or not. I think probably a lot of times not. Not conscious, you know what I mean? I think a lot... Like when you were writing the abstract stuff before you went to the four-year school, Mm -hmm. you were... You thought that you were being vulnerable. Right. Like you thought you were really pouring it out on the page. Yeah. But you really weren't. And, and, And I don't mean it in like a negative way as much as like it's just a... Almost, I guess, ignorant. You know, you just didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Right. And there, and and there's a lot of other factors that go into it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, there's a you know way of thinking that you have to be mysterious. Mm. You know, so it's like, well, this poem's going to be better because I'm going to be more. You know, I'm going to hide the meaning more mm-hmm. or something like that, mm-hmm. and that's going to make it better. And it's like. Well, if no one can understand it, then you're really not communicating anything. So, right. Yeah, it makes, I guess, and this again ties into kind of the premise of your thesis, which I think maybe I asked you to explain and then talked over you when you tried to. So, my bad, but. Uh. <laughs> no, that's all right. I was just, you know, starting from the beginning again. Yeah, but like, well, anyway, so yeah, so, so continue with, with what your thesis is about before I, I go on any further. Okay. Well, um, so anyway, my. Uh, Teaching, you know, my instruction through M- MSU um, was all geared towards making me, you know, more concrete, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so worked on that. Um, started developing uh, a lot of poems that were really st- story-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though, like, I kind of had some lyrical elements where I'd always like, you know, throw in some metaphors or something like that. Um, there was always, you know, some sort of story that the poem was grounded uh, in based on. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it was time to do my thesis, I had this collection of poems that I'd done. And, you know, it's like a big thing about poetry is, like, you know, defining what kind of poet you are. Mm. And, you know, really the two major camps are a narrative poet and a lyric poet. Explain what those mean, if you don't mind, just briefly. A narrative poet would be um, someone that, I guess, 
focuses more on, I guess, a story mm-hmm. or having more events laid out in a coherent sequence. Right. Um, lyrics, well, can have that, but um, really it's kind of more based on rhythm, sound of word, metaphor, images. Mm-hmm. But see, all of those things can exist in narrative too. Right. So that's kind of like where my hang-up was. Okay. Is because I'm kind of both, right? Like, I kind of have some story in there, but I enjoy working out the sound of words and putting together certain things, you know, in a in a rhythmic way, yeah. you know, alliteration, if you want to say, you know. Yeah. And, I uh, that one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's like... I have some poems that are more narrative. I have some poems that are more lyric. I have, um, you know, some that are more metaphorical, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Um, So I I really kind of just got frustrated with trying to define things Mm -hmm. in in that sense. Mm -hmm. Because in poetry, you can kind of find examples of everything in just about any poem. Right. If you look hard enough. Right. You know? Um, so I was like, well, what separates me or, you know, what or how do I fit into this world of poetry? And it seemed to be the emphasis on some sort of story. And so that's kind of where it started. It was like, well, I wanted to preserve story in poetry. Uh, I felt like that that was an important thing for understanding poetry. And um, in contemporary poetry, there's kind of this stigma towards narrative. Um, It's kind of thought of as, I don't know, less creative. Can I ask a question? When you say contemporary, does that mean within the last 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100? Like, what does contemporary mean? Because poetry is an old art, right? So Correct, correct. I would say 10. Oh, okay. So that recent, recent ten twenty. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I understand you don't have like. Well, on September second of nineteen ninety two, they said. I mean, I get that, but most recent. But it's not a hundred years. No. Okay. No. Okay. But uh, yeah, basically, you know, poetry that's been that's being produced now and well, yeah, within the last ten, fifteen, twenty years, maybe. Sure. I don't know. I mean, literary periods go for different amounts of time well that's why i was curious because when i and again i have no knowledge of any of this um but in my in my memory of all that stuff like i feel like literary periods can last a long time so that's why i asked is it a hundred years is it yeah the most recent period is really contemporary and then somewhere along the lines someone is going to define it do you know what would be considered the most recent time period prior to contemporary um, there's kind of like a lot of different variations. Yeah. Um, the reason, I guess one of the big reasons why there's a stigma against narrative kind of comes from, I think, mostly confessionalism. Okay. What's that? Confessionalism is kind of like a, a very personal, introspective type of poem where you're kind of like confessing something almost like maybe journaling except in a poem kind of kind of yeah Yeah, it really borders on that line of journaling kind of cliche like pouring my heart out now that's 
if you're really bad at it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> don't right. get me wrong. There's a lot of great confessional poets out there sure. that, you know, everyone should read and they could enjoy. But um, I think that because it was a fad or, you know, the, the new hotness at the time, that a lot of bad confessional poetry was written. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of like, I don't know, taints it. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. In poetry, that everyone's always kind of looking towards the next type of poetry. Like, what can we do that's new? Um, so away from that, um, you know, there's like, well, we got to get rid of narrative or, you know, explore what's what we can do without it. ties into also deconstructionism um, in language as a whole. Um, it's kind of pretty much accepted now that language is inadequate and how it's kind of just provisional. Like we're kind of just always searching for like the best word at the time. Uh -huh. But rarely does it define everything that we mean uh -huh. you know like um, an easy example would be you know calling a dog a dog um or a cat i mean that's one way of describing it but that doesn't describe everything that it can be right you know that makes sense it's a friend it's a family member Right. In some circles, it could be a lover. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't think that. I don't think. I don't think those are circles. Um, I. I don't think those yeah. are defined as circles. Yeah. So, you get my point. Yeah. 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 Well, that took a turn, folks, didn't it? Uh, all right. But yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, it's like. So we we've we've invented all of these words and kind of like agreed upon a certain meaning about them. Mm -hmm. But if you really wanted to like pin down a meaning, you would basically just go in circles in a, in a dictionary. I mean, you know, one word means another, and eventually it comes back to the other. Mm -hmm. But um, so because of that, um, there's this idea that narrative or you know describing our reality is also inadequate uh. that we can't really put that into words because of language uh -huh. so to try and fit it into narrative is like imposing an order there that we're almost like maybe taking for granted that it's everyone's narrative, but it's not everyone's narrative, right? You know, people see things in their own way. So to be able to describe reality in a certain way is kind of just saying like, this is what it is. 
but it's not that way for everybody and they would potentially describe it differently right i guess yeah but i think to some extent like isn't that kind of just what an idea that i keep coming back to um i said it i think on a recent podcast but we did a podcast a couple months back with this guy named Dylan Barr uh, from out in Colorado, a guy I met in Orlando, super cool guy. And he wanted to, one of the things he wanted to kind of talk about was, was this idea of balance in things and, um, and how, how significant it is and, and how it's kind of just in everything. And, and, and anyway, I feel like I'm doing a bad job of describing it, but, Whenever I whenever I had that conversation with him, I mean, you know, I know what the yinging symbol is, or I know what I know what that that concept in general means, right? Like I've thought about that before. It's not profound, but it was for me. It, it that conversation that I had with him um, was profound for me, and it's something that I've actually now. It's something I abandoned a long time ago in favor of, of finding the binary version of everything, finding out the, the one or the two or the zero or the one or whatever, right? But actually what I've, what I just can't escape for the last several months now since having a conversation is like, that balance is actually just critical for everything. And so when I hear you explain that, what I act, what I'm hearing is like, it's really just, it's just that balance. Like, you can't, you can't just not explain anything because then it doesn't make any sense. Right. But it also can't be explained in a quote-unquote perfect way because mm-hmm. that doesn't actually make any sense either. Right. And so instead, it's like it landed. It's nuanced. It lands somewhere in the middle. Like all of life is in the damn gray area. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's that's kind of like where my uh, almost. I mean, I, I joke about being done with absolutes, but I, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of just over trying to find that end all be all yeah I think it just I think I think that you know a person only has so much time in their day right and so um, I think that for things that you don't care that much about absolutes provide a really easy way to define it and deal with it and then be able to move on from it yeah you know, I don't it really requires less thinking exactly because you decided and then now you, that's it you don't have to consider but for things that fascinate a person, I think that nuance is the you know it's everything. That's that's the whole deal. Is that is that nuance that you explore? But um, you know, in in uh, relation to language, um, if you think about what that would result in, if we had a perfect language, that everything would be defined exactly as we said, right? And there was no leeway for anything. Um, it would, yeah, basically be reducing everything to zeros and ones. I would be interested, in, I, and I have never studied it, so I don't know, I'm not speaking from a place of knowledge, actually, but my understanding is that the the old Hebrew language is actually based on on math, like like all of the, like, like it's like mother and father, the words for mother and father. Every character has a mathematical value tied to it. And so if you, if you were to put mother and father together, then the word for child is also simultaneously the sum of the words of mother and father and those values. So I always thought that was super fascinating, but 
So do you think that something like that almost might be too restrictive? Because um, how do you have synonyms? Like, how do you say dad and mom instead of mother and father? Because does dad and mom still add up? Because well, probably not, right? Because it's yeah. different words. I guess where I was going with it was that if the language was perfect, it's basically saying that reality and whatever system that we're experiencing is limited to that. Mm. And I don't know. I like the idea of there be always being possibility. Mm-hmm. And so in order for that to exist, it has to be imperfect. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know a lot about the Hebrew language. Oh, yeah, and, and I saw the movie Pine. <laughs> That's it. That's yeah. all I know. So. But, uh, yeah, I mean, potentially. I mean, potentially any language can, can be maybe more restrictive and constricting and, you know, putting uh, some reality in a box of some sort. Yeah, I tried to talk. There was another show that we'd done previously with a guy named uh, a guy named Alexander and he is originally from Germany and and you know has lived in America for quite a while now and speaks you know perfect English or whatever but I, I was asking him about like just knowing more than one language do you feel like it expands your capacity to explain something but I don't think I said it like that I think yeah. it said does it help you understand stuff better and he was like no which is fair but that's what I was trying to say is like, does it help you position things differently? Because the way that a f- sentence is structured in German is not the way that a stru- sentence is structured in English. And so it seems like if you could hold multiple ideas of what language is, that could provide some interesting context for this kind of yeah, exploration, absolutely. you know? Yeah. I know one language, by the way, yeah, so I'm not sh- I'm not shaming one languagers. <laughs> thus shaming myself but I think yeah I mean it it would really just lend itself I mean it'd be like you know having more tools in the toolbox and that's kind of what he ultimately still said was he was like yeah I mean it it provides more context right Um, yeah that's interesting so what I'm gathering is that in in your thesis you started out with the abstract then you go to, to school you learn about narrative and then really what you find, though, is that you're actually kind of frustrated by having to try and put things in a box all the time and say this goes in this box and that goes in that box. Well, I mean, the whole time that I was writing poems, I I mean, um, I was never, I guess, worried about trying to make it a certain poem. I was just trying to... I, I always challenge myself to try and do like a, a different type of poem like every week or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would just kind of play around and experiment with whatever I felt like I wanted to do at the time. Mm-hmm. And then that just kind of resulted in a wide range of, of poems. Okay. You know, so yeah, trying to narrow it down and say, you know, I'm this kind of poet. It, I mean, I, I couldn't really do that for myself because that's not what I how I wrote them going into it, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, as far as, um, I guess, the narrative and how contemporary poets are moving away from that, I guess. And it's not all poets. I mean, sure. I mean, there's still narrative poets. Again, you don't want to be absolutionist in your yeah. statement. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, not, yeah. But, um, so what it results in, if you take away narrative is a lot of fragmentation, um, 
a lot of uh, images, you know, which can be good. Um, but I, I think really the best way to describe it um, that's easy to understand is like a collage. I mean, you, you know, of, of various pictures or images that can have a meaning together. Right. Um, but it's not necessarily thrown out there for you to get easily. Right. Um, and it may not be there at all. Um, so you kind of have to work at it and kind of have to decide what it means to you. And unless you're wanting to pay a lot of attention to it, it's kind of hard to just get some surface meaning out of it. Mm. You know, you really have to sit there and think about it if you want it to mean something. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy for people to come across that type of poetry and think that poetry is not for them or that they can't understand it right. or it's above them, you know, whatever the reason may be, um, and just be turned off by it, you know, because it's hard to understand. Which is, it's interesting, like, so just a few episodes ago, I know I just keep referencing a previous episode that I did, so that's probably insufferable, but um, <laughs> I, one of the episodes I did recently, I did a, a segment on... Uh, how like no one would ever say like if you were like hey do you like this TV show it would be weird if they were like oh no there's literally no TV show that I would enjoy or like hey have you seen this movie and they're like oh no I could never watch a movie yeah. because whatever and it's like that would be weird and I don't think people say that mm -hmm. but when it comes to gaming you can be like hey have you played this and people are just like oh no I reject that category of entertainment yeah. wholeheartedly and so with poetry it's kind of the same thing it's kind of what I hear you saying where it's like people want to think like, oh, it's not for me or whatever. But it's like, yeah, but it is because that would be like saying that, that there's no article in a newspaper that's for you. And it's right. like, well, there might be writers that you do or don't like. But the notion that just literally any article that's been written could never possibly be something you enjoy is crazy. Yeah, exactly. Which is really the same thing that you're saying about poetry. Like there's dog shit poetry out there, but there's also some really cool stuff. And it's subjective. Yeah. So what I think is cool, you might not. And that doesn't mean, it doesn't matter about, you know, what each of us thinks as much as just an individual can discover it and find it on their own and, yeah. and still find significance in it. Um, and I think that medium, the, po the medium of poetry offers that literally to every person. There's not, you don't have to have studied it first. You don't have to have a clinic on what it, what it means to read a poem or something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just... You know, finding the right stuff, um, you know, it can be difficult sometimes to, you know, weed through all that drivel. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with your thesis, so, so, you, so your thesis again is to some extent trying to understand how things don't have to be in a box, but is that the whole of it? Yeah. Um, I mean, it started out as you know, preserving story, mm -hmm. um, but this is kind of where. Um, the academic writing, the researching is actually kind of similar to creative writing. Mm. Um, which is, you know, I, I never thought I would make this connection yeah. going through the master program, but um, the more that you kind of like, you know, delve into a topic, research it, read what other people are talking about it, it changes your viewpoint. You know, like the whole language being inadequate thing, that was something that came I came across 
out of the research. Right. Um, I didn't have that going into it, but right. that kind of helped form the foundation of you know where I was going. Mm-hmm. And the um, with the language being inadequate, it was like I didn't know. Um, let's see how to really argue against um, the contemporary poetry. Yeah. Um, but through the the act of writing a poem, yeah. Um, the one thing that separates it from other forms of writing is using space. And what I mean by that is like line breaks, stanza breaks. Um, yeah, I, I noticed in, in reading because I've you know was reading through your poems that are in the thesis. Sometimes within a it's hard to describe it without being able to, to show it, but like uh, on a single line, yeah. you've got a, a series of words that normally people would be like, oh, that's a sentence or something, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes you will have, you know, a couple of inches on the screen, right? Yeah. Between words in the same line. Exactly. So anyways, I just, I just thought that was an interesting example that I hadn't really thought of before until I saw it. Yeah, like an irregular spacing. Yeah. Drop lines. Um, all of that um, adds to, like, a space when you read it. Yeah. So it kind of, like, can slow it down for you, and it also can give you space to kind of, like, contemplate that last word Mm. or that last idea right and so through that uh, use of spacing like you can kind of emphasize metaphors or create um, that sense of uh, words meaning you know other associations to those words and such Uh so really the act of writing a poem is kind of celebrating that language is inadequate anyway. Um, So to be so against narrative is kind of just redundant. Right. And so like, yeah, just kind of uh, looking at it from that point of view, I guess, and being like, well, we're already writing poems. We're already saying that language is inadequate. Right. We're already breaking all the quote unquote rules of composition because we are acknowledging that it doesn't it's not sufficient already so then to also remove narrative in an attempt to to show that it's not sufficient to your exact statement it's redundant right and the result of that is really just an alienation now that you know we're writing poets for or writing poems for other poets Mm -hmm. uh each other um you know, it's not gaining any other readership because no one can understand it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and that's shown throughout, you know, the years of just in publishing, you know, in uh, poetry books are, you know, <laughs> very small in print run compared to fiction books. Well, well, so this kind of brings me to a point that you and I have discussed before, which is, so you, you've said before, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the a best practice, and certainly, you know, can't say it's a requirement, because again, nuance, right? No requirements, but a best practice for reading poetry is that it's read out loud. Yeah. 
Um, and so, you know, I've been to events where you have been on a stage and you've read your, your poems out loud. Yeah. And so that's one thing because you're the one that wrote it. And so you know how, what you're looking for and what you created it. Right. Yeah. But if I was to take your poem and read it out loud, like do you, you, so you still advocate even me if like, and I know you, so that's not a good example, but if I was going to read a Robert Frost poem, I never met that guy. Yeah. If I was going to read that, you would still suggest that I read that out loud to myself. Yes. Um, what I, I mean, I usually, I'll read it like maybe just once through and then the second time I'll like read it out loud. Mm. Um, I usually read a poem like maybe two or three times. Well, so, you know, when I think of modern poetry, um, I think of slam, honestly. Like, I feel like that's, you know, in modern times, like, for the layman, for the person who's not in that scene, really, that's what's like, oh, well, that's the credible poetry scene of today or whatever. But I wonder how much it benefits from the fact that it is just read out loud. And so if I hand you, if I show you a poem that was written and you, not you, because again, you know these things, but if, if again, a regular person that doesn't know anything about poetry maybe comes across a written poem and doesn't know that best practice, they're going to just read it like they would anything else. And maybe they don't get as much out of it, but then maybe they go to a coffee shop and hear a slam poet or whatever. And I wonder if, if, if they read that same slam poem in their head, if it would have that same resonance that it does being read on stage. I would guess not, because I think there's some element of the performance to it. Yeah. I mean, I would say that's probably true, but I mean, I would like to think that a good poem is a good poem regardless. I mean, if it only works one way, then, I mean, is it really that great of a poem? I don't know. I mean... I don't know. I mean, um, I think that things can exist in a very narrow slice and still have value in that narrow slice. And so maybe it doesn't translate to uh, as you know, as wide of a net of credibility. That's a very confusing way to say that, but you see what I'm saying? Like, maybe it's not as long-lasting or something, or maybe it's not as significant across multiple groups of people or across time. But, you know, in a slice, it could still be as significant as it needs to be. Which I understand you're not trying to hate on it. No, no. I mean, uh, I mean, yeah, there can easily be a distinction from like being a good like written poem, and like being a poem like made for the stage. Yeah. I mean, even just in like, you know, the poems that I've written, there are some that really just go better on the page that I probably wouldn't read out loud. Mm. But there's other ones that you know have more rhythm to it that you know i would prefer to read well there you go folks i tried to give you a best practice or rule to always read out loud and then we find out immediately following that that yet again there's some stuff that's just better read in your head still right well no i mean as far as like as a performance and like presenting it to another person and, and to be clear, I was just simply trying to be make a joke about the the idea of like, well, yet again, we can't be absolution. Like, oh, yet again, there's this nuance. Yet again, there's this gray space where maybe it's okay to read it in your head too, yeah. you know? <laughs> but so maybe maybe a better best practice is to do both. Like read a poem in your mind and then read it out loud and see see how that, you know, makes you feel or whatever. There's just certain things that like you can 
kind of catch when you read it out loud. I mean, just in writing anything, like, if you read it out loud, I mean, it's like, oh, well, I would change this, I would change that, because that doesn't sound right. But when you're writing it, sometimes you just kind of get in that mode and, you know, put the words on the page. Oh, I've had that. I mean, I've, you know, as most of you can probably tell, most of the walk show is unscripted, but (laughs) I have tried to write script out before, which is actually why I kind of don't typically do that is because when I write, I'll, I want to insert little clever things or whatever that aren't how I talk. Yeah. You know? And so it de- when then when I try and just stare at the page and read it out loud into the microphone, it's like, oh, that sounds weird, or that's <laughs> that's not how I want to say that, or whatever, you know? Yeah. And then I end up changing it, and then now I'm not reading the script, so then what was the point, you know? Well, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, was, I've always done both. I mean, uh, especially in revision, reading it out loud helps. Yeah. You know? You know, something that I that I've always been, you know, again, like I said earlier, I've not gone to, to college or anything. And um, to be perfectly frank, I'm just pretty irritated by the education system in general. I, you know, and again, I didn't go to a four year school. So I and I understand that that experience typically is different than, you know, grade school or whatever. But, you know, I went to grade school and then did go to college right after high school and. And I hated it because it just felt like an extension of that. And I felt like grade school was like a version of prison. And I say that because if you don't go, then they put your parents in prison. So literally jail is on the table when it comes to school. Um, So it's, it's interesting, though, because I've always been now when it comes to like the STEM fields, you know, science, technology, engineering, math, that kind of stuff. I don't know if that, I don't know if T is the technology or not, whatever, the STEM stuff. Um, it's like, okay, I get it. I get why you need to go to school to learn two plus two is four and four times four is 16. And there's a, you know, how do you learn these rules or whatever? Okay, fine. Cause that's really a lot of what that stuff is, is it's a lot of rules. It's not really creative in that same way. Yeah. But I've always been very skeptical of, of academic time for, something creative because it's like, nah, I don't know. Do you really need it? But I, you know, again, I've known you for my whole life. And so having seen you go through this process, you absolutely gained a tremendous amount of value out of, out of doing this. Yeah. And at one point during the master's program, you actually were teaching classes. Yeah. How much did you feel? You know, there's a, an adage that, you know, if you want to learn something, teach it. Yeah. How much do you feel like that really influenced your 
your knowledge, your capacity of it all? I mean, it was invaluable. Um, I mean, <clears throat> that was part of the reason why I chose to do the master's is because in that particular program, I was able to teach right away and teach creative writing classes. Mm. In a lot of, you know, other programs, you might not be able to teach till like the second year and to get a creative writing class is pretty hard. Mm. But, um, yeah, I was thrown in there like right away. That was part of the deal. Right. And, uh, it was amazing. Um, I mean, you definitely get to see, uh, a lot of bad poems for sure. <laughs> but, yeah. But, um, the challenge of trying to make their poems the best that they can be um, just offers like an incredible insight because you're, you know, now you're working with, you know, 30 odd poems, you know, trying to make them the best they can be as opposed to just working on your one or whatever. Right. And uh, coming from all different points of view. Right. Um, Everyone has their own style that they want to do, you know. Well, well, and the benefit of the novice is that you might have some practice or some thing that you believe in because you were taught it a long time ago and you've ingrained it and that's just what you do. Yeah. But maybe it doesn't actually, it, not that it doesn't make sense, like it's completely nonsensical, but just like maybe it's not actually necessary. But for you it is because it's part of your process and it's part of how you do it. So it doesn't mean that it's wrong for you to do it. But then you teach it, and now the novice who has no foundation, because that's what you're building, is like, well, why would I do it that way? And so to some extent, it makes you kind of question your own processes and understand it in a different light yeah. because of having to relate it to them. I mean, anything that I I was suggesting that they do, I mean, I had to reevaluate my reasons for it. Mm -hmm. And really what it came down to was that, I mean, I'm fine with all kinds of different poetic maneuvers or tricks or things that you want to do mm -hmm. to make it interesting mm -hmm. um, I just want um, there to be like some sort of conscious reason for it you right. know to think about why they're doing it and to question that themselves right. you know like I had a student that you know refused to do punctuation um, because she was actually a, a spoken word type poet and, you know, a majority of what she did, she was going to read on the mic anyway or, you know, out loud. And um, but talking to her about how punctuation can influence rhythm and, you know, actually even enhance meaning to a certain degree, um, depending on how you use it. Yeah. Um, you know, and then just kind of like talking to her about that and... I don't know, kind of being able to see someone like understand it differently and in a new way is like insanely rewarding, right. I guess. Cause like if they're really invested in it and then, then they're like have a revelation it's like, right. wow, I mean, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, and I think that's kind of, you know, I think that's to some extent the mark of a good educator is an effort to try and It's going to sound really pretentious, but like enlighten someone, give someone the 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 understanding of why this has value, as opposed to my impression largely of academics is that it's like, hey, you have to use punctuation. And it's like, nah, son, I'm on the spoken word. I'm not doing that punctuation. Yeah, yeah. And then the teacher's just like, 
well, then you fail the class. <laughs> And I don't really care about what you think. I just simply have this rule. You know what I mean? So, um, so yeah, I think that just speaks to the, again, because not that every teacher I had was like that. I had some that were certainly. But, there, yeah, there's some that are, I don't know what it is, but, yeah, very uh, rigid in that way. And I, and I always found it liberating because I could, I could just not be that way, yeah. you know. And it, I don't know, the students seemed to be really receptive and yeah, like that. So Right. But, um, yeah, it felt great just being able to, you know, talk about anything creative and the process and how poems are really any anywhere and just kind of like trying to get them to be able to see that. Right. You know. So we've, you know, again, I, I, I keep going back to these. So what is the, and again, I know because I've read it, but if you wouldn't mind explaining the, the structure of your thesis, how it how, and, and the reason I'm doing this, to be clear, is that, you know, again, I don't have a college education at all, certainly not a master's degree. And I think that that, you know, bachelor's degrees are, are certainly not common. I, isn't a fair word to use. I don't have one. Um, but bachelor's degrees are, are way more common than master's degrees. Right. And I think that a lot of people maybe don't really know what goes into to doing a master's degree and kind of the apex of that journey is the thesis right that's like the, yeah. the capstone of the whole thing yeah. so so how is it formatted and kind of what was that journey like of of, of writing the actual thesis <laughs> well yeah two more, two more hours folks yeah. uh, <laughs> it was very chaotic um i don't know like in the way that i think about things and the way i've always approached anything creative is my process tends to be um, working with various pieces and then kind of fitting them together. Mm. And so, you know, I kind of explained, you know, the, the poems and narrative and lyric and uh, fitting into certain camps and, and all of that. I mean, these were like stages of my understanding of poetry as I went through the program. Uh -huh. um, it wasn't until really the very end when I'm putting this thesis together where ever all of those pieces and everything that I've kind of like evolved into kind of made sense and I m made that fit into the world of poetry through that thesis um, I don't know exactly I mean it wasn't I, I didn't write it from start to finish I mean I wrote various sections of it um, I had to read, you know, several books and pull things out of them. And a lot of times when I was reading those books, I didn't know what I was going to use out of it. I just knew that there were certain things that were significant. And so I would read something I knew that was significant that kind of fit with what I was thinking about. So I would highlight it. And then as I, you know, worked on putting it together and putting words to the page and like looking at all of the, the pieces that I had put to, you know, saved uh -huh. um, made sense out of it the best that I could and I felt like I don't know, I finally was able to like figure out some sort of understanding of where I was placed and what I was trying to do, I guess. As a poet. As a poet. In the world of poetry. In the world of poetry, yeah. Like, 
you know, what that all meant. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't just spewing feelings on a page, right? There was yeah. more to it than that. Right, right. Yeah. Mm. Well, well, so the, the actual format of the thesis then is that you've you've got, I think it's 16 or 17 pages of, yeah. of academic researched this is what yeah, this is what my work means yeah it's it's a critical introduction it's a an essay is that what it's called yeah okay. they, they refer to it as that a critical introduction I guess okay. um, it's a critical introduction right here huh? yeah <laughs> but um, but but that's the the essay of you know explaining I guess my poems um the field of poetry as it kind of is right now um i go into you know destruction uh deconstruction with the language Mm -hmm. i also talk about um uh romanticism there Mm -hmm. we go um i've my my work is kind of placed uh in a post-deconstruction world with a neo-romantic view I'm glad you said that because I was actually going to read the last sentence of your abstract if you didn't, yeah. uh, which I'm just going to do now anyway. It's, and this is in reference to his own collection of poems. The poems collected here are introduced by and an essay advocating for the preservation of story through narrative and situates my work in a neo-romantic position in a post-deconstruction world. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> if anyone thought that they were the smart cat on the blog... <laughs> Tell me what that sentence means, and you can't, which is why we have to have Crabtree come on the pod to explain this to us. Well, it's really not as, as difficult as it sounds. Yeah, all right. Um, but uh, <laughs> romanticism is a, a literary period, um, and neo just means new. So, mm. so it's just an, a new view of romanticism. Um, back in the romantic period, uh, I reference uh, Wordsworth, who's a big poet back then. Mm-hmm. And he had this idea of taking language and making it, uh, writing poems with a more common language, you know, the common language of man is what he referred to it as. But, you know, basically to get poetry to a wider audience. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and you know, but... They were coming off of a, a really structured um, literary period where people were mimicking like the classics, like Greek and Rome, and you know everything was very structured and and so on. And so they wanted to get away from like the elevated language, so to speak. So, so he's kind of exploring the value of the common language. Exactly. All right. So this then is a complete tangent, but. Like, if you meet, like, a Tom Shoemaker, well, then probably what that means is that Tom's great-great-great-great-whoever-the-fuck made shoes. Yeah. So that's why his last name is Shoemaker. Right. So it's interesting that the guy who advocated the value of the common language, his last name is Wordsworth. <laughs> really? Really? I don't think that's on the birth certificate. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Awesome. Yeah. That's what he's What's his first name? Jacob? Uh, William. William. You're breaking my balls here, William. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, uh, I don't know why I came up with <laughs> I don't know this Wordsworth fellow. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah. So, you know, that was part of it. Um, 
there's a lot of uh, rebellion there. The industrial revolution's happening. You know, people are working in factories. Um, escapism is a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know. Taking it back to like rural life and yeah. kind of like reminiscing or dreaming or you know romanticizing right that's right the term that's where it comes from right but um so anyway taking that idea you know the common language and uh really just building upon that and being like that's part of it right um none of the language that i use I would say is elevated or like hard to understand in the, in, the, in your poems or in the essay or in my poems. So I would agree with that. And I would also actually say that it, I think it's also true in the essay. So while I wasn't, you know, I'm not again, educated in this, so I'm not previously familiar with necessarily the subjects or topics that you're addressing in the essay. Cause I don't know that much about it. I was actually surprised at how plain of language you used and I don't mean that as a, as a shot at all, like not like it was simple or, or, you know, underperformed in any way, but like it wasn't this, it wasn't like reading a legal document or something. Like it wasn't this really heavy, long, big words that don't make. So to actually just give a better example, that sentence, the through narrative and situates my work in a neo-romantic position in a post-deconstruction world. If the whole thing was that sentence, I don't know what it means, but it's not, you know what I mean? And I, and again, I'm not even criticizing that sentence. I understand that does, you know, it's relevant or whatever, but the whole essay is not those sentences over and over. It's actually written in a very readable, digestible way, which I was surprised by because again, I have no knowledge of these things. And I just assumed that a thesis was like, you got to push your glasses up on your nose to read this shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can, I mean, um, I just like writing that way. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it kind of was, you know, ingrained with me with, you know, learning to write poetry and be more concrete and all that stuff. But I don't know. I mean, uh, I've always kind of approached it as like, I want to be heard. You know, I want there to be like a free flowing communication. And so right. trying to make it as like as easily as understandable as possible but still like conveying like complex ideas you know yeah yeah that's a perfect way of saying it it's 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 non-complicated language to explain complicated ideas yeah. um and i you know from knowing you i that i'm speculating a bit but i think there's also a little bit of like the a little rage against the machine in you there. Yeah. And I, don't, and I don't mean that you're a rapper or something, or I just mean like, how about I write a master's thesis and I write it this way? Yeah. I use some good words in there. I, mean, I, think like, I, I don't. I don't mean that it's that it's written like a like a layman or someone that does. I don't mean. I, and again, I'm not in any way criticizing it. Really, what my point is more that I, as the person who doesn't understand any of it, can read it and digest it. Um, not that it's, you know, not that it's written as, you know, it's not like the thesis reads like see Dick run, <laughs> you know, throw the ball to spot. I mean, it's not that, you know, so, uh, I, again, I, in no way do I mean to, to be critical of it as much as it really, I'm, I'm trying to pay a compliment that it, I thought it was neat that, that it was that digestible for being such a very specific point on a specific topic. You know. Oh, maybe your reading level is higher than you thought. I, I doubt that. <laughs> I doubt that. We did a lot of standardized testing as, as children, and I, I was never in the cool percentile. 
So, so you've got this 16, 17 page kind of essay that's kind of an academic. It's researched. It's cited. It's an MLA format. Like yeah. it's all the the college stuff, yeah. if you want to call it that. And then, but then the rest of it is actually the collection of your work, which the essay serves to kind of prepare you for as to what yeah. what the work accomplishes. Toward the end of the essay, um, I talk about a poem by Charles Simic and I use him as an example of a poet that, you know, uses story in a poem, but then still conveys a complex meaning. Yeah. And then also analyze a poem of mine and kind of like relate them. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, this is kind of like my influence. Yeah. Right. Um, so that kind of serves as as the foundation of going into the collection. It's like, oh, okay, you know. So I see. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, those poems um, were written over several years, like at different times. Were um, revised multiple times too. Yeah, revised multiple multiple times. Um, read by various people, several teachers. Like I don't know, lots of changes. I mean, a lot of those poems, I mean, I mean, everyone is different than when it was first created. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Which makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I will say my favorite ones are the ones that have anything to do with me or, or my family. So <laughs> I'm a very vain person. Um, that's actually not, not entirely true. I do, I do really, I did think that was really cool. But so how many poems are in your thesis? Do you know? I mean, it doesn't have to be exact count if you don't know, but how many are in there? Yeah, yeah. I don't know the exact count, actually. Uh, somewhere around 50, I think. I forget what the total, well, what's the total page count? Like 60? Yeah. Yeah, it's 60 something and you take 16 pages away. So yeah, roughly 50. That probably sounds right. Huh. So, um, and, and you know, obviously, the, the listeners aren't able to read the poems right now, but a quick segue, you are looking at finding ways to make this stuff available, whether it be in a, you're looking at like maybe publishing it in a book or yeah. getting some online presence. So at some point, this stuff will be available for people to consume on their own. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a few publications already, um, but yeah, getting more publications is, I've been kind of shooting for that. And, Eventually, you know, hopefully having some sort of book or manuscript uh, to be able to send out. I mean, that kind of serves as kind of a really good draft for a manuscript. There's kind of some poems in there that I would like to change or work on or, you know, so on. But probably even take some out and add some new ones. Sure. Um, But yeah, so there's some work to be done there. But um I don't know. It would be great to eventually have, yeah, have a book at some sort. Right, right. Well, so where I was going with that, so do you have a favorite out of the ones that are there? Do you have one that stands out or, or maybe a couple? Like, is there any um, that have a great significance to you that you'd maybe want to elaborate on to some extent? Or um, I mean, they all kind of have like a, a certain significance, I guess, but um, I don't know. Um in the essay, the one that I referenced with Charles Simic, um, the poem that I use for my collection involves my grandfather teaching me chess. Mm-hmm. And that holds a, a, a pretty high significance. Yeah. Um, because that was like one of the first ways that 
we communicated. Because to be clear, he was from the Philippines. Right. So he didn't have a strong command of English. Exactly. Right. And you're a little kid. Yeah. Um, so you also don't have a strong <laughs> command of English. Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah. So there just really wasn't much talking to be had. Yeah. You know? And, um, and, but we were able to communicate through this game, uh, you know, just teaching me how to move the pieces and different things. And, and of course it was years later that I actually delved into chess more and kind of was like, wow, there's a lot of, you know, cause how old were you when he taught you? Oh man, I was like, I was really young, like maybe, I don't know, five, wow. six. Yeah. yeah. And just for the record, you know, I, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to have met and known your grandpa and he was a, a very lovely man. He was all, he was, a, I mean, he was, he was yeah. super, he was super kind and warm all the time. And, uh, I don't know. I just, I always had a lot of respect and appreciation for him because he always, you know, obviously I'm not part of your family and you know, he doesn't know me that well or whatever, but he always, he always treated me like I belonged there you know when i was around and yeah. i always appreciated that he's a, a really you know big heart you know mm-hmm. and and it's crazy because in that in that poem like i talk about him teaching me chess but that's kind of just part of it yeah you know that's kind of like the the surface narrative so to speak well that's the thing that the reader can really infer without having to look for anything else like it's a story about a a grandpa teaching a child chess but then really there's also all these layers of like the connection that you guys are forming and the significance of that emotional bond that's being developed through this yeah and uh i mean i i go into also you know talking about his background yeah because um he fought in world war ii yeah and um fought the japanese in the philippines and the way they had to do that was, you know, guerrilla jungle fighting because that's the terrain. Right. And so, you know, then I never really my mom would never like tell me in detail, like exactly the things that he had done. Mm-hmm. But she would always, you know, kind of hint at like, yeah, he's nice to us because we're his family. Right. He's Wu-Tang Clan, though. Right. right. Like he's done some stuff. Right. Yeah. And uh but yeah, he took uh, took a few shots in the in the belly uh, and a bayonet stab, and Crazy. you know because of that had like I think they was they had to like remove part of his bladder or something like that. Mm. But um, he had to you know always had to go to the restroom like frequently, and so I'm kind of like talking about these things as we're learning chess, mm-hmm. and you know. The Japanese, well, they lost, you know, so I guess so history says, right? Um, so even though, like, he was victorious in the Philippines, I mean, well, his takeaway from it is this wound, you know, where he has to go to the bathroom several times. Right. And so it's kind of like, well, who's really winning at war, right? I mean... Right, yeah, you can win the war when you talk about it from this high level, this government defeated this government or something. But when you go to the personal stories, it's like, yeah, yeah, no one won. He doesn't, he got stabbed. (laughs) There's no victory in being stabbed. Right. Right. I don't know. There's that. And then, you know, there's kind of like a, 
a playful, um, I correct him, like, in uh, one of his moves, like, he's like, you know, this piece eats this piece, and then I'm like, no, it's take, you know, so it's kind of like, Mm. kind of funny, because... You know, like who's teaching who? Like he's teaching me the game, but I'm kind of teaching him the language. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, you can kind of see how eat and take are similar, right? So then it kind of, I don't know, points to language being inadequate, I guess, also. Right. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, that was, that was also like kind of like my first poem that was really highly recognized. Okay. Um, it was, uh, chosen as a, a winner by uh, Carrie James Evans, who's a poet that visited Missouri State, and we had this like contest or whatever. And okay. So he chose that as like the winning poem, and I actually got paid for it. And hey, nice! You're a professional poet. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I've got. Um, I've yeah, I got paid for that one, and then there was like two other poems that I sold to like an anthology. Huh. So. Yeah, made made a little bit. I mean, if any of those featured me or my family, I feel like I'm probably looking maybe five, ten percent. You know, <laughs> no, none of those. Oh, okay, good, okay, yeah. Yeah, but when they do, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, you know, I like to, you know, like to get my cut. You know what I mean? <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding, but um, so. So yeah, so so to kind of summarize, because we've had a, you know obviously a long winding conversation here, but to kind of summarize it, basically what I'm understanding, and again I'm I'm paraphrasing and, and condensing a lot, but really your argument is that narrative structure, such as that story with the grandpa teaching you chess, yeah. is important because it grounds the poem in something that allows almost any reader to access it yeah. because they can now see this. But just because you think that the narrative is important doesn't mean that you also completely discount the idea of having metaphors or, you know, this more lyrical, yeah. as you put it, style. Um, and that really kind of the, 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 the key, again, is to kind of find that balance yeah. between the two. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I guess we haven't talked about this as kind of an important point I guess but uh, the the way I think about uh, narrative I mean there's obviously a lot of different ways and viewpoints out there but I see narrative as existing in kind of like a spectrum so like you could have a weaker narrative right um, where it would take a little bit more work to kind of pull out a story right or you can have a really strong narrative where it's like the story is right there it's you know this happened this happened this happened this happened right you know so like along that spectrum of experimentation i think that there's a lot that can be done but like you said finding the balance of having enough narrative so that there could be some sort of you know understanding from a reader that may not have any poetry background. Well, it's interesting because like you said, you know, you kind of stumbled into poetry later in your academic career. And, and when you started as a writer, you, you were trying to do short stories. Yeah. Like, and again, you know, I can't, I don't have a way to provide it to the listeners, but there was a short story that you wrote that I think was maybe, I don't know, seven or eight pages. 
And I was blown away. And this is before you did any poetry. Yeah. And I was personally blown away by it. Like, if you guys know who Neil Gaiman is, I told Tree, I was like, this... And again, I'm probably flattering him a bit, but not intentionally. He's just my friend, so I get excited. But I was like, this feels like something that Gaiman would write. Like, it was that... It was that good, but it wasn't a poem. It was a short story. But so it's also interesting that, you know, when you went to poetry, of you know, initially you wanted to do this abstract stuff. And, and part of it was through the education of the value of the narrative. Yeah. But I wonder how much also some of it is like you're kind of also hearkening back to that storyteller that you wanted yeah. to be, you know, I mean, and finding a way to weave that into this new medium. I mean, that's kind of always, I guess, been the driving factor. I mean... I remember at, at a young age thinking like, oh, it'd be cool to write a fantasy novel or, yeah. you know, something like that. And um, I remember making a conscious decision <clears throat> when being, you know, choosing between like short story and poetry. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, past resonances where, you know, I'd like tried to write a poem or something for whatever reason and thought it would be cool to like know something about poetry but just never did you know and then it's like now i'm, I'm stuck with this choice of like do i choose you know short fiction or do I choose poetry and i'm like well if i can learn everything i can about poetry surely that could benefit any other writing that i do yeah because you know when you're starting to look at trying to fit things in, you know, limited space, um, trying to be more efficient with your, like your word use mm -hmm. or choosing different words to kind of hold more layers of meaning like that translates into other forms of writing, right? you know, so you could easily do like a, a longer work and still like be poetic about it, yeah. you know, I don't know. So that was kind of like, yeah, I'll learn, I'll learn to do poetry first. And then, you know, maybe I'll go back to writing a fantasy novel or something. Yeah. I don't mean to put you on blast at all um, with, you know, something that's that's pretty new and, and, and vulnerable, probably. Um, but you've, you, outside of the context of us talking about this, you've talked about now that you're done with school, you know, obviously we have a lifelong passion for gaming. And so you've talked about maybe dabbling and trying to figure out how to create a game, right? Um and it's interesting, I hadn't had this thought before this conversation, actually, which is funny because we've talked about this beyond just this time. Uh, but it was the first time it occurred to me that, and I'm sure, you know, people that are, pro are computer programmers will say that I'm crazy and whatever, but, but hear me out. I think that there's actually some parallels between writing poetry and computer programming. Mm. Because the way that, again, from a non-computer programmer, so I understand that, people who are programmers before you crucify me, uh, to some extent, you're learning a framework, a language, right? And then you're, you have a problem that you're trying to solve. And so then you're just using all of the tools that you have. Like, I think the thing about programming is interesting is I think people think of it as a math problem, yeah. but it's not. There's actually a ton of creativity that goes into programming because you need X and Y to do Z, yeah. but there's not a just there's not a pre-prescribed way for how that happens. And so then as the programmer, you actually do exercise some creativity in how you build that to all work. And there's, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, 
the game Doom 3 that came out in like 2004. There was a piece that Kotaku did on it years ago now, but where they explore the beauty of the code of Doom 3 because the guy who wrote it, or the guys, whoever, were are like, they view programming as kind of like an art. And so it's actually very beautifully constructed and like very, very artistically crafted while still being a piece of computer programming that serves to solve math problems, to (laughs) achieve things, you know? Um, But it it reminds me of poetry and how it's kind of similar where it's like you're taking this tool set that is, in this case, language, the English language in our case, and you're trying to solve a problem, which is how do you communicate an idea in a form that you've chosen? And now you, the creative process is then using all those tools within that framework to make it work and how beautiful it is or not kind of comes down to your talent, skill, diligence, a variety of factors. But, um, but that's where that subjectivity kind of comes in. I I guess that's, that's kind of a good way to think about it is like, I mean, really poetry is in, in everything. Yeah. And it's kind of like just being able to like, I don't know, share that with someone and have them be able to see that. And I think, bridging that gap with story can help yeah um at least open up more readers to to what poetry can be yeah um because you know with that i guess you know space to kind of see things in a new way um in a way it's kind of like you know enhancing consciousness or kind of like giving you a new way to think about something, uh, expanding your awareness, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like a really valuable tool, um, especially, you know, as humanity progresses. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, I think poetry needs to find a way to stay relevant in our culture, um, that it's going to benefit us more to have that around than to really just forget about it. I wonder how much value there would be if maybe we did a, if we just maybe did some recordings of you reading poems and then maybe publishing those as well. So that in written form, so that people could, could see it, the written form, but then being able to hear it because, and the reason I say that is that I think, you know, you, you've emphasized to me a lot, which I brought up earlier and, and we talked about, but the idea that people should read this stuff out loud and again, maybe you should do both, but I think a lot of people don't know that. And even if they do know that, if I'm sitting in a, if I'm looking at my phone, right, on the internet, and I find a poem that I want to read, and I'm in a waiting room, I'm not reading it out loud because right. it's not socially, it's weird, you know? Yeah. But so if there was a way to find it vocalized and read out loud, maybe that would help people be more attracted to it because it would open that window to them of like hey you can hear it this way too you can consume it in this different way and and also teaching people that it's that the just because it's read out loud doesn't mean it's slam right (laughs) like doesn't i mean really though because i mean again if you you know if i think about poetry being written out read out loud i mean i guess maybe i think of like a like a weird pretentious coffee shop scene, but honestly that scene still is interrupted by a slam poet, you know? And to be clear, I don't mean to say that slam poetry is pretentious or that those people aren't talented or that there's not value in that art. There is, but I think there's this thought that like, 
that's the only out loud poems. Yeah. And it's it's really all of them. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think we've covered, you know, a, a ton of information just about what it is to, to write poetry and what it is to, to do this thesis program. Is, is there anything that we didn't kind of cover that you wanted to touch on still? I mean, I know it's an infinite topic and so yeah. there's always something else to say, but um, I, I really wanted, like I said at the beginning, I wanted to kind of have people be able to explore what it's like to write a thesis and what it's like to what goes into that and then really just learn a lot about poetry from quite literally a master at this point um so yeah is there anything else master that we should that we should know um yeah i mean uh don't be afraid of poetry yeah really i mean uh, is there anyone who shouldn't read poetry no yeah. no i mean everyone should try and find a poet that they like yeah i mean you know I'm sorry. but i mean you know it's like everyone has something that's moved them that they've experienced either through film or music or something, you know, video games, video games, like, um, you know, there's poets out there that can also give you that experience and, uh, even, you know, make you think in ways that you didn't think you would think. Right. You know, and that's what it's all about. Like, right. I don't know, just finding new ways. Finding to that think. profound. Yeah. 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 And it's, uh, and being okay with, you know, just kind of reading, whatever it is that's presented and and not like being so um stuck on trying to puzzle out a meaning well again you know like i said like i said at the very beginning you know it would be crazy if someone was like oh i don't like any movie well there are some movies if i show you fast and the furious five and that's the only frame of reference you have for a movie you probably hate movies yeah. right because that's terrible right but but that's not how all movies are. So if you read a poem and, and it doesn't click with you, that's not representative of poetry as a whole. Um, so just like just like the other mediums, there is something out there. So it's like every poem that you may come across, just have an open mind and yeah. Well, I would say you know if anyone is interested in 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 you know exploring poetry or, or, or getting some ideas on where to start with either finding stuff to read or or what that writing process looks process looks like or anything. Um, you know, certainly you can email me at Walker at the walk show podcast.com. And, you know, I've got access to the, the poetry master here, so I can, I can follow up for you. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's a, like I said, you know, I, I did it only, you know, that one time with real, with, with real effort behind it, but I found it to be a really engaging and enriching experience. I thought it was a lot of fun and it kind of gave me a little confidence. Now to be clear again, what I eventually wrote was not, was not qualified to be in the thesis, right? Um, but but by talking to Chris about it and getting kind of some input on on what what could work, and to be clear, he never actually suggested anything content wise. It was all um, just that like what rules to pay attention to and not. Like I was really hung up on like if I was going to write a line, then that that thought or that idea had to conclude by the end of that line, like a sentence. So it was almost like I was writing a series of sentences and you really helped to help me to understand that like you could write a sentence that extends into the next line in the period or the end of that sentence is in the second line on the page. And that's okay too. Cause again, I've always, you know, and very little of that even, but written in the, the traditional composition way or whatever prose. And, uh, and so, I'm very beholden to those rules because that's all I know, you know. So, 
Um, well, Tree, thank you so much for for joining us today and, and taking the time to explain all of this. Uh, again, guys, you can you know email me at Walker at the Walk Show Podcast dot com if you got any questions, and I'd be happy to 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 get some answers for you on that. Uh, thanks again, Chris. It's been a blast. Yeah, thank you. It's great. Awesome. Have a good one, guys. Folks, well, that is going to do it for today's show. Thank you so much again for listening, and thank you, Chris Crabtree, for, for joining the show to talk all about that. It was a really fun conversation. Uh, also, at the beginning of the show, I kind of mentioned that we might talk about Three Kingdoms. You know, certainly the thesis conversation um, was more than enough, <laughs> so we didn't really have time to get to that. Just real briefly, I'll say that it is the best Total War game uh, that's come out in a long time. Uh, so if you're something you're interested in at all, absolutely, you should check it out. Again, Total War Three Kingdoms. Um, Again, thank you so much, guys, for listening. Appreciate it. Have a good one.